Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining Great Arabics Podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan. And today with me, as always, we have a very interesting guest, Mike Monet. Mike is the CEO and founder of Jonesec. He's uh, a former hacker, pen tester, red team extraordinaire, turned, well, yeah, drone security expert, I guess. Best way to say it, Mike. Yeah, that's right. Drone security and threat intelligence. All right, there we go. Thank you for coming. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me here. So how did you get started and how did you get into this? Sure. So I guess I'll give you a bit of a, a frame of um, what DroneSec is uh, and then take Please. you through, you know, how that, that all kicked off. So, you know, DroneSec were a, a threat intelligence firm specifically for drones, right? And we're mostly talking about group one and two drones. So under 55 pounds, the smaller ones uh, that you're seeing on the news, maybe a lot. The, the motto of the company is to protect people and drones from malicious drones and people because it's a, a two-way thing, right? And most of our far- staff are ex, you know, fast jet pilots, military drone pilots, hackers, or they worked in exploitation or intel teams related to, to drone collection. What we really have is a, a threat intelligence platform related to drones, and we do finished intelligence products for it. And so I'll, I'll kind of take you as to how that began, um, but I'll start off by saying, you know, our first customer was a uh, national intelligence agency arm, and most of our customers are in the law enforcement, government, military space, right? That's that's really the sweet spot. So in terms of, uh, you know, how we got there, so I can probably tell you the journey and then what we focus on in terms of drones, but um, I was initially a penetration tester, so I, I kicked off my career trying to hack into everything from you know, boats and planes and buildings and networks, that type of thing. I worked both for Australian Defence as well as some Defence Primes and boutique shops. Where penetration testing kind of took me was as a a red team lead. So we focused on infiltrating physical premises. We would try to break into everything from power stations to banks. We did prisons, skyscrapers. We had a team between two and five who'd usually do lockpicking, do you know other physical infiltration methods, social engineering, uh, cybersecurity, that kind of thing. And of course, drones, like drones became a major part of our red team methodology because, you know, you do OSINT, you do a scoping out of an area, um, but having a little bird in the eye, the eyes in the sky, should I say, to assess a perimeter and look at guard timings, ingress, egress points, you know, it, it's an incredible tool, gather network data, um, cause distractions, you know, there's a, a huge amount we could do with drones. And one of the key things that we picked up was using a drone around really sensitive sites would usually not even raise any alarm bells. You know, we'd expect when it's hovering over that sensitive area for people to come running out, no one could hear it, you know, or we wouldn't get much of a response. So for us, that that red teaming side was super important. There was a, a project that came up and it was to try and hack into a commercial drone. This was probably around 2016. And during that project, you know, seeing the drone's vision go straight to the laptop screen and seeing the keyboard being used to fly this drone around the room that 10 seconds ago belonged to, you know, an ally was incredible. And when we did some research, you know, found that not many people had anything in the way of hardening guides or protection of drones or anything about the threats that they could pose. So did a bit of searching and found that not too long before, a drone had landed on the White House grounds with no real restriction. And another mm-hmm. drone had landed on the, the Jap- Japanese uh, prime minister's house with radiation on it, right? Wow. And so these kind of incidents, I was like, well, if they can do that to these types of facilities, you know, the, the prisons that we're testing have nothing on 
you know, uh, the, the White House, mm-hmm. for example. So that was really the, the starting times of what we call the counter drone industry, you know, where you've got detection or mitigation systems, as well as looking at the threats drones pose. So, you know, as with probably most organizations today, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but we started using an Excel spreadsheet to catalog every drone incident that had occurred and what kind of technologies they were using, which threat actors were using drones, what were their tactics, techniques, and procedures, you know, what was the flight path for a drone into a power plant versus the flight path into a prison, what kind of modifications would they use, you know, signal boosters, extra batteries, you know, blocking out the lights on the drone, you know, what are all the little things that a threat actor or an adversary can do to gain, you know, the upper hand and using a cheap, effective tool, you know, to to be able to infiltrate a premises. And one of the things about drones is there's a super low barrier to entry. Anyone can pick it up that's so user-friendly and use it. It's cost-effective. It can cost only, you know, a couple hundred dollars. And it, it puts the separation barrier between you, the pilot, and the drone. So, you know, you could be two kilometers away or a couple miles away, and your drone is doing the bad deed. And the whole focus is on stopping that drone and not really attrition back to yourself. So, yeah, that was a, a major part of it. So the idea for drone tech was we're going to need a, a high level of intelligence around drones one day, and there was nothing in the, of that nature at the time. Uh, and mm-hmm. if there was, it was it was manual, right? It was nothing compared to what we have in the standard of cybersecurity or threat intelligence tooling. Mm-hmm. So the idea was to take it from an, an Excel spreadsheet to a real dynamic threat intel platform that analysts could use on the fly, you know, real-time visibility, a common operating picture of threats, actors, all that. Um, and from that, our aim was to provide customers with, you know, forecasts, predictions on what was going to happen, trends analysis. And, you know, it, you've been talking about intelligence a lot, and I've, I've listened to a lot of your your things that have come out, but context mm-hmm. is everything, right? You know, and so... Absolutely. Without context, if you're standing up a, a system to try and detect or stop drones, you have no idea what threat actors are operating in that, that area. Uh, you have no idea what kind of tactics they use to target that perimeter. So we want to be really specific on the threat modeling um, mm-hmm. and knowing what we're up against, right? Um, so, yeah, as, as I said, our first customer was uh, an arm of a, a national intelligence agency, which for a small startup at the time was, was huge. And, and we've kind of just led a global effort from that point onwards in terms of our, our products and standing up the company. Very cool. And that was how long ago? So I started researching the, the drone threats back in 2016, but really mm-hmm. only in 2020 did we kick it off as a commercial business. It took some time through focusing initially on drone cybersecurity, like penetration testing, doing red teams with drones doing bits and pieces of work where no one was really willing to put the money behind it because the threat wasn't so in their face. And so uh, really the way that we were able to educate the user was by creating a training, which we still do today, a certification, as well as that threat picture. So you inform them enough, they'll be able to, to take on the services to actually test against that kind of thing, You know, whether it's a red team or whether it's just intelligence about a, a future threat. All right. That's very smart. And so today you have multiple clients, you, you have a, a global footprint. What, what, is, what kind of trends do you see with your clients and, and interesting questions? I mean, it's three bar question, but what is the state of the art? Let's say that in the drone threat modeling. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. So look, most customers will be divided into two parts. 
One is the protection of their drone systems from threat actors, whether it's cyber or whether it's physical kinetic. And the other side will be focused on protecting their assets and perimeters uh, from rogue drones. There's a small element that exists between both, and that's the cyber aspect, and I'm, I'm happy to jump into that. And then there's the other, which is all the, the physical side of, of drones and the threats they pose. So the, the drones we look at are the, the hobbyist or commercial ones where you can go to a store and you can purchase a drone and acquire it without much friction. We also look at the enterprise drones, which are sold to big, larger organizations. And then we also look at some military-restricted drones that are in that group one and two size range. Now, the reason why we, we still look at it as a cyber problem for some of those drone systems is because they're very much just hovering laptops, right? Drones have operating systems just like computers. They support the same yeah. protocols as computers. You know, they're hackable. They're vulnerable from those same kind of focus points that we would look at uh, at other systems. Mm-hmm. And one of the big pieces of education you have to make is people say, well, drones are just IoT. A lot of IoT can get hacked into and breached. Mm-hmm. And we kind of go, well, you know, if you've got a an IoT fridge and it becomes part of a botnet, it's just sitting there in your kitchen, right? Yeah. A drone is a kinetic device, right? It hovers mm-hmm. around people at ground level. It can hover indoors and outdoors. It can go beyond visual line of sight, a few kilometers away, to being controlled by, you know, via another country, by LTE or, or 3G, you know, satellite dishes and so forth. So there's a huge range of motion and a lot of dimensions in which drones exist. And the fact that they can carry payloads and be a payload themselves, which just makes them so much more vulnerable of a, of a target, right? And so, uh, you know, I'd be keen to chat to you about some of the, the cyber aspects, if you were keen, before we delve into the, the threats. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I guess you asked what, what's the state of the art, where we've come from. Mm-hmm. I think the whole drone cybersecurity scene re- really started with when DJI, one of the major drone vendors, and they're still probably 75 to 80% of the market is, is DJI-branded drones. They kicked off a bug bounty program. Right. And there was individuals out there, you know, groups like the OG hackers, names like Kevin Finisterre, who really pioneered a lot of those exploits or vulnerabilities and weaknesses for drones. And so DJI came out and started paying people to some vulnerabilities for their systems. And there's a big difference between the mods that you can do for drones to, to make it fly into an area it's not supposed to be versus, say, an exploit, which allows you to, to manipulate that drone into landing where you want it to be or do the commands that you want to do see the vision that it's seeing, all that kind of thing. And shortly afterwards, Parrot released a bug bounty program as well in terms of cybersecurity for their drones. Now, during this time, we set out on a bit of a mission and it was, you know, using systems that we know today like Shodan and so forth. What kind of drone systems could breach and be able to responsibly disclose to the vendor? And in that journey, we started looking at counter drone systems, which just for maybe the listeners out there, you know, there's detection that will tell you there's a drone in the air, and then there's countermeasures, mm-hmm. which could be nets, guns, lasers, you know, cyber, RF. There's a Jammers. whole range. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so um, we ended up plugging in some of these counter-US systems into Shodan. And it's one of those moments where you know no one else has done that kind of thing because we had multiple counter-drone systems that were protecting sensitive infrastructure all over the US and other parts of the world. And they were cloud-based. Not only that, they were very weak to being able to to be manipulated. And some of them, we could log into their dashboards and be able to switch off that counter-drone system, virtually allowing, you know, rogue systems to fly into that area. 
And so, you know, it, it was a crazy That's period where we went from, yeah, trying to hijack drone systems to, you know, from an ethical perspective, hijacking counter drone and telling the vendors about it and they would fix that. And this was very early on. I mean, we would find drone detection systems sitting live deployed in an airport, but they were spewing details about the friendly, you know, police or law enforcement drones flying in the area. And so that kicked off a bit more of a research. We, we found drone analytic program, programs as well that were just revealing all flights from private law enforcement drone programs or, or critical infrastructure facilities where maybe you don't want your drones that are assessing, you know, 3D visuals or models of your infrastructure. You don't want those models or plans being out on the internet, right? Or, or someone knowing where all 50 of your sensitive telco towers are because the flight logs have been, uh, have been leaked. Just because there wasn't a sense mm-hmm. of security around it, right? It was very much focused on, on innovation. Yeah. And so I, I guess just to, in terms of what we've been seeing now, like there's a lot of drone accounts that are sold online as with your Netflix and, and Disney Plus subscription hacked accounts. Mm-hmm. There's drone accounts being sold because what's better to pair with a stolen drone than a stolen drone account? Use the two of them and you, you're quite inconspicuous, right? And then lastly, you know, one of the key things we're seeing today is, is drone light shows being breached. So a lot of these are awesome displays. They do less pollution than fireworks. They make less noises. Don't scare your dog, right? And it creates this incredible scene in the sky. However, a lot of them are focusing on that innovation. And, you know, in the Southeast Asia Pacific region alone, in the last two years, we've had more than seven events where drone light shows have been targeted. They've fallen out of the sky, you know. Oh, wow. And just the threat there is the fact that if you're able to control these drones, fly them into a, an airplane's, you know, airspace or, or flight path, right, you could heavily restrict and, and jeopardize a mission. Yeah. I mean, it took one or two drones to ground all flights from Gatwick Airport a couple of years ago. So imagine if you had a whole swarm. Absolutely. And there's just something I want to say on that, you know, regarding airports and what we're seeing in that space. So, mm-hmm. like, we track multiple drone intrusions to airports all the time. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a daily basis, right? And often the financial cost is quite large because they have to ground the planes, keep them in the hangars, ground the, the planes that were going to land and so forth. And so there's some key points here. One is that a drone, the threat of a drone going into an engine is so powerful that even the threat of a sighting will shut down an airport right now. Mm-hmm. Now, in the history of threats, have we ever had something where just rumors can cause a shutdown? That has happened plenty of times in the last year, right? Mm. So activists are kind of getting onto this and they're, they're going and blackmailing an airport and saying, we're just going to call in a sighting of a drone and we know you're going to shut down the airport. So give in to our demands. Mm. It's a blackmail tactic that's, that started happening. And if you shut down a, an airport, something that happened in Korea, South Korea really recently was a drone flew into the airspace and that the traffic control tower attendees spotted it and they shut down the airport for a couple of hours but the result was there was a nearby u.s military airbase as well and commercial planes had to be redirected to land at that airport now if you ask me putting a drone into the air and maybe causing confusion and and quite a busy airspace above a military airport could have consequences if you were you were planning on not having military planes in the air right not to say they may have had other runways or whatnot, but there's various tactics and techniques that people can use to cause flight paths to shut down or be re- redirected to military air bases. And especially with a, let's say, very hostile nation across the border. 
in, in, in the case of South Korea. That's really fascinating. I saw a, one of the things that really like jumped up at me was a video I think you guys shared of a bank robbery conducted with a drone, which is not directly related maybe to cyber, but, but using a drone for an intrusion. And that was fascinating. Can you, can you tell me a little bit more about that? That's I'm really interested in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's two key examples that, that come to the top of my mind when we think of bank robbery with drones. Mm-hmm. The first, which you're probably mentioning, occurred in France where, you know, they used a, a small Mavic 2 and they attached a, a telescopic pole to the front of the drone. You know, they taped it onto mm-hmm. the drone. It was a small slit for, for air or ventilation, the top of the door to the back of the mm-hmm. bank. And they simply smashed that piece in. No one could fit into it. It wasn't the size mm-hmm. for a human body. But they flew their little drone and flew it into the bank area and then used that pole to press against the exit button, the fire exit button, which swung the Mm -hmm. door open, which was a secure door, and allowed them to enter. And then using secondary measures, they emptied the safe and made it out with a certain amount of cash, right? Mm -hmm. So that was a very tactical way of using a drone to actually gain access. Another one actually happened in Ukraine in in a peacetime area, but some guys robbed a foreign exchange office and they, they took all the money and they immediately had a drone waiting there and they loaded up the bag to the, the drone which was an Inspire 2 launched wow. it and this thing just carried 50,000 euros down the street by air while the guys could run away with no evidence at all right? Yeah. Unfortunately for the, the bad guys the, the net caught on one of the rotors causing the, the drone to crash and that's why we know about it right but how many oh, others right. do we not know about where they've uh, used yeah. drones as getaway vehicles Fascinating. And then pivoting that type of attack to a bank or financial institution. I think for people listening, maybe they're not as geeky about this stuff as I am, but can you talk maybe more in depth and and maybe show or speak on examples of where drones, where I think, I think for you guys is so very interesting, where a drone was used in like a man in the middle attack by landing it on a roof and getting into a network or because that's one of the threats a couple of years ago that I've been hearing a lot about, but did that pad out? Yeah, look, I mean, drones have been used by from a red team perspective for that, whether it's network gathering or, or credential sniffing and that kind of thing. I think as early as 2015, NCC issued a, a white paper based on using a, a Wi-Fi drone to go and, and snoop packets and so forth. And since then, there's been various iterations of drones used to try and collect and break into networks and so forth. So you may have seen some of it around. A lot of it is is more on the sensitive side. But for example, you know, there was a, a drone that was found on a, a, a power station within the US. Its camera was taken out. Its SD card was removed. The, the software was cleansed of any a, a attribution, right? And so you're getting kind of that, that middle ground between red teams using it for practice and then you've got the bad guys or the threat actors and adversaries using them, but cleansing them and sanitizing those drones of any any forensic detail. So the anti-forensics side of things is, is ramping up to make sure if, if their drone is captured, even after all of that access, um, if it hasn't flown away, they can remove that stuff. So yeah, there's, there's plenty of examples there. We, we probably get less of that in terms of intelligence coming in compared to, to some key incidents we see in, in both conflict and non-conflict zones but yeah super Mm -hmm. interesting stuff it it reminds me though you know there was some some interesting things we've seen occur online so 
loosely related to, to cyber, but I guess I want to show where that line is blurring. For example, you know, one of those is there's been hacking forums around for a long time and different actors will dump a database and sell it online. What we're starting to see now pop up on hacking forums is schematics or blueprints for example, military based drones. So DARPA based yeah. drones that they're selling the blueprints for eighteen thousand dollars. We're seeing Switchblade three hundred, so loitering munitions mm-hmm. being bought and sold on darknet forums, sometimes being sold to buyers who are in non conflict countries, right? So super interesting seeing what kind of things are happening in that buy and sell space. And we know for a fact, you know, there's a Russian modding group called DJI nine eleven uh, or nine one one, however you want to put it. And they acquire counter drone jammers. So they, they acquire the jammer guns that are used to jam a drone's signals, whether it jams the control mm-hmm. and the visual or the GPS signal. They acquire them and they test them against their drones and they create bypasses and modifications for their drones so that they're not affected by those jammer guns. So just seeing the innovation in the space of, you know, these kind of systems and what they're doing to make sure their systems are undetectable is super interesting. I I know it's maybe loosely related, but maybe for listeners, just to give an an example of where I saw this whole industry changing. I I don't know if you remember the whole stonks period where uh, people were putting bets on things like GameStop, right? And uh, Diamond Hands. And against hedge funds like Citadel. Yes, exactly. Diamond Hands. Yeah. HODL. Exactly. And um, one of the really interesting events was they were using open source intelligence or, or publicly available information to find that at the Citadel office, there was a, a lot of foot traffic, right? And you can do that with Google. When you check on Google Maps, it tells you how busy a location is. And just like the road, it tracks mobile phones to see how many cars are on that road. They were tracking how many phones were in the office. And at 2 a.m., there was a massive spike in foot traffic. And so these Redditors went and had a look and they were like, something's going on, but it's level 26 or something in the, in a skyscraper in the CBD. And what they ended up doing was someone nearby on Reddit was like, hell yeah, I've got a drone. Let's put that baby up. And he live streamed the footage of the Citadel HQ through their windows to the rest of the Redditors on a live stream. And so you've instantly got this incredible you know, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance from someone who's just got a hobbyist drone in the middle of, I think it was Boston. And they were just able to fly that bird up, have a really in-depth view of what was going on. And then they've got guys over the internet that are making trades based on what they're seeing. Is Citadel packing up? Are they moving in? What's happening? So there's just so many use cases for drones. And I think it reminds me as well of one of those industry turn points where you notice something unique happening that hasn't happened before. There was a journalist in Russia and, and he had been reporting on some of the opposition and they had a, a raid attempt at his door. And so his neighbors shouted up to him that there was a raid happening. They were on their way up. And so very quickly, you know, instead of grabbing his hard drive and chucking it in a microwave and zapping it or, or trying to do something that might leave mm-hmm. information on the disk, he simply loads it into his drone, grabs the controls and flies his drone to a friend down the street. That means completion of data, right? You're not losing anything. It's sitting on the hard drive and, you know, it's flown away by a drone. It's just the innovation we're seeing in the space by actors and threat actors being able to, to exploit drones, for their their powers, basically, is just incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, like, I don't know how many of our listeners are, but I, I read mangas. And there's one manga, I think, called Aijin. There's also an animation on, it, on Netflix where they show a lot of these techniques with drones that, that 
you might not automatically think about that. And one of them was where they went to a building without weapon, but a drone carried the weapons to the roof. So they got into the building without the weapons and I went to the roof, opened it, mm. got to the guns from the drones. And it's a matter of time. Like something like that will, will happen, I think, in, uh, in real life. I mean, this is happening in real life already, and I, mm-hmm. I can give you some Big. some clear examples of that, right? Yeah. But y- you're right, drones are not vehicles, and a lot of traditional hostile vehicle mitigation efforts fail when it comes to drones. They just fly right over that, right? Bollards, barbed wire fences, it, it's just a, a bypass. What we've seen a lot of, especially in prisons, is drones delivering contraband, of course, and narcotics and weapons to prisoners. Usually it consists of shivs and mobile phones, SIM cards, narcotics, cigarettes. Now, what's been happening increasingly in the US is hacksaw blades are being dropped to prisoners, whether it's on the ground and sometimes they'll cover it with a piece of grass, right? Or they'll deliver it to their window. And they'll often use fishing drones because fishing drones can dangle a piece of bait, right? And for anyone who can't see me, I'm using air quotes there. But that bait, the, the drones built for fishing, have software that helps it balance, right? And it helps reduce that pendulum effect. Wow, I didn't even know that existed. Yeah, some of the Gannett fishing drones were created in in South Africa, actually. And then they were eventually banned, which was an unfortunate day both for drone fishermen and criminals. But um, (laughs) you'll you'll get why. So the the fishing drones are also waterproof, right? And they can do redrops, which means if you've got a specific point which you drop bait, you can just reprogram it to go straight back to that exact spot. So now just imagine a prison window. They're using these fishing drones to deliver contraband straight to a prisoner's window. They reach through the bars and they're able to grab that package. Now, often they're delivering hacksaws. And in some cases, especially in Italy, they've been helping people escape from the prison using those hacksaws or, or escape tools. In other cases, and this happened in Italy as well, a drone allegedly hand handed, should I say, a handgun to a prisoner, fully loaded, he walked right up to his target and was able to, to take them out. So they're delivering mm. weapons to prisons already, whether it's shivs or, or loaded handguns. And cross wow. borders is one of the, the biggest items we look at in the Jammu and Kashmir area. It is one mm. of the hottest drone zones today. Outside of Ukraine and Myanmar, Jammu and Kashmir mm. is absolutely hot. And what started happening a few years ago was small drones like your Phantoms and your Mavics, and they've been delivering anything between 250 grams and 1 kg. And then they started using some of the more enterprise drones, and their packages were between 2 kgs and maybe 5 kgs. And what started happening is they were using the agricultural farming drones with heavy lift payloads. And mm-hmm. what we're commonly seeing today is packages between 6, 7, 8, and 10 kgs in size and weight. Whether it's narcotics, sometimes it's ammunition, uh, other times it's weapons, frag grenades, you name it. You know, they're pulling that across the border, no border control to their friends on the other side. And some of their TDPs are super interesting. These groups will use village children to do the flying, right? Because it's very simple to fly a drone and it even puts a, a further piece of attribution or loss of attribution between them by getting these kids to just fly from point A to point B and deliver these these weapons and contraband. And, you know, the interesting thing about these farming or agricultural drones, and I guess what I'll get to maybe towards the end is that the prediction in the space is that we're seeing less and less mm. just standard filming drones. We're seeing them either use FPV or, or do-it-yourself DIY drones, 
or more of the yeah. big farming heavy lift agriculture drones. And there's been some really key use cases like in Brazil, this was probably one of the big turning points of drone threat intelligence. A protest group used a, a heavy lift agricultural drone with a, a five liter payload capacity to spray a, a, a combination or a cocktail of chemicals, feces and urine on a crowd. But that crowd included the ex-prime minister of Brazil, right, and, and heaps of people. Mm-hmm. And as it started spraying, the downforce of the rotors sprays that, you know, liquid across all the, the people in the crowd. And at first, yeah. the problem is they look up and they think they see a filming drone, you know, officially meant mm-hmm. to be there, yet they find out they're being, you know, targeted. So these are the kind of things, yes, they're happening in, in different countries around the world, but if it's easy enough to do there, and someone uses an example like a canary drone to test flying around a stadium, the next thing mm-hmm. they could do is use an agricultural drone that can be purchased to spray that same liquid or sarin gas or what have you in that area. And so that's that's the real threat is these um, these large heavy lift drones that support weight. And one, one last thing I want to point out on, the, I guess, the heavy lift drones. One of the things we've seen in Haiti, I don't know if you've, you've followed some of the developments there in terms of what's happened. It's now controlled you know, by the, by the gangs, right? Who've been writing about it. Amazing, yeah. And the, the president or the ex-president of Haiti uh, was assassinated, right? And a lot of that reporting revolves around him being shot. But if you really mm-hmm. look at some of the, the reports around, you know, who witnessed it, the guards, the police, drones were used to drop grenades and explosives on the, the roof of his palace or, or the area he was before mm-hmm. he ended up being shot. And so even if they're yeah. not used as a direct targeting device, you know, and, and those gang leaders right now are on TikTok filming themselves flying DJI FPV, really skilled around an area. And they are using drones to, you know, look over areas, control streets, look for, you know, adversary gangs, take them down. There's, there's a whole bunch of drone use in these areas where it's really hard to even get reporting out of whether they use social media less or whether it's just, you know, uh, telecommunications are down, but heightened use of large drones uh, and their use in things like everything from assassinations to helping and advocating people being able to access weapons and, and contraband and currency across borders. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, you mentioned Jungle Kashmir and what I find very interesting and, and from our own research and, and general reporting, we see that all these innovations and technologies such as drones and blockchain technologies are at an accelerated pace because they don't have access to conventional financial means or or conventional ways of, of getting weapons, supplies, whatever. And so you see in these type of areas the innovation that is happening at such a rapid pace and obviously, I want to I want to get into Ukraine, but before we do that, I also wanted to. It's a country that I'm personally very interested in. Is Myanmar? Can you tell us a little bit more about what is going on there, if, if you can? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Look, in in the way drones have been used for warfare and innovation, I would clearly say that Ukraine has learned a lot of of Myanmar. Right. And it, it almost seems like it should be the other way around, but mm-hmm. drones were used in Ukraine from 2014 onwards, right? And they've been used to various extents. But drones have been used by the PDF and the resistance groups in Myanmar to incredible extents where we're receiving reports of drones dropping payloads, killing up to 40 to 50 troops at a time, right? 
And so wow. the, the state of drones in Myanmar is incredible innovation. They have small houses where they'll make the, the payloads out of water bottles. They'll put shrapnel and caltrops in there. They'll design the fins themselves. They'll color the fins differently to basically quickly tell them which one is maybe a shrapnel versus an explosive or a different type of munition. And being able to attach these payloads, they need payload droppers. We've seen everything from purchasing them online, which is very accessible and easy to get, right? They can cost between 30 to 60 USD to developing themselves, right? Getting a printer, a 3D printer, getting the blueprints online. And if you do a search or you do any threat intelligence around drones, you'll know that the exchanging of blueprints for payload droppers is is a hot market right now, right? It's who can make the best one that works well, that balances the payload correctly, that can accept different sizes and types of payloads. We're not using pieces of string anymore, right? it's, It's super interesting stuff. Within Myanmar, we've seen some super interesting developments. So one of them is the targeting of maritime vessels. It's not something from a threat intelligence perspective we've seen in many other countries where they're actively targeting boats, moving boats, right? And their drops are so exact and calculated that these payloads are landing right in the the control sections of these boats and taking out the drivers. And they're being able to do this over water, over many kilometers, right? Where we know they're using signal boosters, they're using Mm -hmm. modifications, putting out by modification groups. And more commonly, what we're seeing is drones targeting critical infrastructure and, and power facilities, so within Myanmar, they'll target a facility by using a, a two-drone setup. One drone is from afar in third person, watching over the, the primary attack drone and giving them situational awareness. The primary attack drone is then loaded with explosives, and they even show the flight path they take, which is very useful for analyzing this. For If you're in the US or if you're in the UK or Australia, it's super useful to look at what flight paths they choose to take whether it's nape of the earth, whether it's behind some trees and then over a hill, whether it's directly from above. Super interesting because that forms your defensive plan, right? But I'm getting into recommendations now. Those drones, so you'll have the, the secondary drone view and film what's happening because it's as good for propaganda as it is for the actual attack, right? And then you have the primary drone do the drop and they'll take out power for whole areas, right, by, um, by hitting those. They are using explosives. I know, you know, there's been previous cases in the US where they used copper cables and, and attempts like that, but they've been using munitions and, and standard, you know, RPG grenades and so forth. Those drones will then, you know, get out of there real quick and they'll be able to, to take them back and get out of that area before there's any kind of resistance. But Myanmar, huge amount of deaths from drones. We've seen some innovation in the way they drop payloads. So before this occurred in Ukraine, and a, a great thing about threat intelligence, right, is if you capture when something happens the first time it's been seen and compare it on a, a rolling basis to everything else around the world, you know when something has occurred and you can see how long it takes for threat actors to share that information and use it in another part of the world. And sometimes it will be drip fed from you know country to country. Other times an online mm-hmm. tutorial makes it easy enough to use very quickly. But what we initially saw, drones would be loaded up with a payload and they dropped their payload, and then they'd get out of there. Then we got the subsequent munitions, where they'd drop the first one, and they'd program it to then drop the second one, or the third, with multi-dropping systems. Some of them would bundle them together, so all those payloads would drop at once. But what we started seeing was drones dropping payloads that were strung together, and all five of these munitions would drop within you know, a five-meter radius, but they wouldn't go further than that. 
And so it would create this drop radius around the target, which would almost ensure a level of shrapnel or, or explosion that would uh, hopefully, in their mind, harm or, or uh, take out the target. So Myanmar has researched different types of munitions for different targets, different drones for different flight missions, and different types of mods depending on the, the environment. It is an incredible amount of innovation happening there, and we do see something occurring there then emerging within Ukraine and vice versa. Fascinating. I think, obviously, the 3D printing is a big part in Myanmar, where they use the guns, the 3D printed guns, and it has grown a lot. And, and, and I think we, we spoke to the person, the first person who shared plants and who made them in Myanmar. We, we found him on Reddit, actually, and were able to talk to him for a report. And now, as you said, this interchange between, I think... What people sometimes don't understand from a threat perspective is that this is not just a, as you said, a Myanmar and then it proliferates to Ukraine and other places, but because Myanmar and Ukraine has so much support, there's a lot of crowdsourcing going on where people in the US or anywhere else in the world are coming up with ideas and the test beds are these countries. And I think nowhere we've seen more of that than in Ukraine, even from when the conflict started to now, the state of the art has exploded compared to like the first invasion in 2014 to the second. And my question is, how much of the crowdsourcing support from other parts of the world is playing a role and how much is indigenous development? That is a terrific question. And, and I guess I want to share a quick story which segues into that because it demonstrates that crowdsourcing and, and where that support has come from and maybe where, mm-hmm. where it's being nurtured um, indigenously. Right? Yeah. So there's a, a group in Belarus known as the Black Stork Gang. You, you may know of them. They are a, a resistance group, and they've been using agricultural-based drones to drop incendiary payloads on law enforcement for quite some time. They got pretty good at it. Their TDPs are out there because they publish their videos on, on YouTube, mostly fly at night. They drop incendiary payloads, usually on, on assets, cars, vehicles, yeah. buildings. And what's super interesting about the Black Stork Gang is their community on Telegram is almost 30,000 people. And so, you know, people in the threat intelligence world will go to a conference where maybe there's 5,000 people and they'll share, you know, tactics and techniques. And then you've got these groups that are sharing how to use drones and bypass counter drone measures and drop exactly with accuracy. And this is 30,000 people who are seeing that and then sharing it out to their groups as well. And in these Telegram channels, you're seeing things like introductions to the group, for example, that that did the drone hit on President Maduro in Venezuela, where they had two drones with explosives very close to the president, right? Attempted assassination, if, if you want to put it that way. But they're making introductions to the groups behind that in Venezuela to the group in Belarus. And then a few weeks later, you see the Black Stork Gang start posting pictures of their agricultural drones in Ukraine, right? And, and the group in Ukraine and helping support some of those efforts. So not just is it a, a matter of the crowdsourcing from afar, some of it is, is actually close and it's happened in countries around Ukraine. It's kind of bled into that area. And I think Ukraine is, is the perfect test bed for they are right there. They're the ones in the mix, right? They're having to figure that all out. And I'll share with you something that, that DroneSec did super early on within the war related to this. 
So we've been tracking drone incidents within Ukraine for some time. And what's super interesting is we saw an uptick just before the invasion in February. There was already increased uses of drones for different drops and so forth. And when it came to the actual invasion, one of the things we did was we looked at all of the TDPs we have in our Threat Act glossary, which is a glossary of every group that is using drones for adversarial actions, right? Mm -hmm. This could be surveillance, could be strikes, could be propaganda, what have you. And so what we ended up doing was we published this operational security guide, and it contained every single TDP we had noticed that cartels had used gangs, organized crime, you know, militant groups, even protests, because protesters have come up with some of the most ingenious ways of flying drones and evading law enforcement. Why can't some of these tactics potentially, and I say potentially, aid you know, people in Ukraine? Potentially because no battlefield with electronic warfare measures should ever be compared against small commercial hobbyist drones. The reality is that these small drones have bypassed some of those mechanisms and they do fly in Ukraine today and there are hundreds of drones flying in Ukraine. Yeah. However, you never want to say you will be protected because you're using a protester's TDP in a, in a conflict zone, right? But that's the caveat you have to make. So one of the things we did, we took this all together and we looked at, you know, what are, what are the ways that they do visual and sound camouflage, right? How do they launch drones in a way that reduces sound? How do they, they paint them? You know, do they paint them sky blue or do they paint them gray? You know, what, what's the best mechanism for hiding your drone? What's the best way to launch and land your drone? Is it a few hundred meters away to avoid artillery fire? Do you turn it on immediately? Do you turn it on later? How do you land it? Other things like unboxing. What is the sanitization hygiene that you do to your drone when you receive it to remove beacons or, or spraying out what its, its ID is to, to drone detection systems, right? Mm-hmm. And even simple things like actually before we, uh, before we started speaking on this podcast, we were talking about uh, some reindeers yeah. that were tracked near the border. And, and to fill in listeners, I guess reindeers have tracking systems on them and sometimes near mm-hmm. the border of Russia, they can, uh, they can appear somewhere in in Siberia, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of spoofing going on. And so one of the tactics was to to be able to spoof your drone's position to any detection system that you were in enemy lines. And so if there was targeted fire, they wouldn't want to target their own lines. Or you could just spoof it to somewhere, you know, in the Pacific Ocean, and and they just wouldn't know where that drone is unless there's visual confirmation. Um, So there was a few kind of key you know, tactics and techniques to avoid detection and countermeasures that we'd seen adversaries use. And at the same time, like I talked about from the cyber's perspective, there was ways to, to make sure it couldn't be exploited if it was compromised and they were able to do forensics on that system. So I know that's a, a very long-winded approach, but there was, there was innovation from what we've seen from the bad guys already being utilized by friendlies over there. There was utilization by, you know, in-country in and just determining that on the fly, being able to use drones and, and determine what the uh, reaction is. And losing a bird is, is very hard, whether you're a drone flyer or not. And so they, they felt that and they innovated. And again, we saw innovations and techniques coming down from countries nearby Ukraine, right? Just to kind of put it in perspective, Ukraine, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, all of those countries have had cross-border flights of large drones for a long time and they're innovating all the time they're they're transferring up to 25 kgs of cigarette you know packages at a time Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. there has already been some sort of of innovation and 
it's just growing. We're seeing fixed-wing drones. We're seeing drones made from pieces of rubble. We're seeing drones come in that are commercial. But the innovation there is happening from all sides. It's being spread online. And you've got tutorials that are being made in many different countries that ends up being utilized in Ukraine. Very interesting. I mean, I spoke about this on, on another podcast on how Finland, which shares a large border with Russia, I think this is 2016, maybe, came up with this concept of mobilizing civilians to form their own militias. So any hobbyist that had a drone could be called up locally to help protect and surveil the border for intrusions. I thought that was very uh, innovative and, and this speaks to what you were telling about smuggling that's happening. that has been happening for years with drones. Now we, as you mentioned before, we're seeing that FPV drones are being used to, you know, carry RPG-7 warheads, anti-tank uh, grenades to yeah, inflict huge damage. Where do you think, and I don't know, it's a bit difficult to, to say that, but where, where do you see the, the next innovation? Where do you see that going in Ukraine? Yeah, that's a, a terrific analysis of where we've, we've seen things happen already, right? Is, is going from these standard, you know, Phantom 4s and Mavic 3s dropping, you know, grenades from above from a, a static mm-hmm. position to your first person view or your FPV racing tile, style drones. Some of those tactics are super interesting. You know, the reason why they might use a, a, a drone hovering above is they're perfect for slit trenches, right? And, and open areas on tanks and buildings and vehicles. You can drop something straight from above, straight to below with good accuracy. An FPV drone is incredible because you don't have to be from above where there's a hardened roof or there's a hardened exterior. You can target a very small window to enter and detonate that explosive within that small room or a trench that has a doorway that you, you know, is fully protected from above. So you're getting it from a horizontal, horizontal angle, should I say, a vertical angle. Your tactic changes mm-hmm. based on your target. And I think we're going to keep seeing more innovation in the space. One thing that I think what we're seeing is an, an emerging threat. And I don't know if you know the, sharp, the sharpshooter system, the, the gun that can automatically target. It, it's an attachment oh, for yes, a rifle. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Automatic target tracking and it, it kind of moves the gun in that way that it will, it will be exact. Mm-hmm. We're seeing some pretty amazing calculations from drones that are against moving Humvees traveling at 60 to 80 kilometers an hour, and they'll be able to drop in a way with a bit of lead time, accounting for things like wind and all that, and it will still hit the target. They can only be so good up to a certain point in time. I think what we're going to start seeing is these automatic targeting, both for FPVs with target recognition, a little bit of AI mixed into it, as well as the the vertical drop drones where they're going to have calculations being done by the software just like they do for everything else in that drone they can calculate where that payload is going to drop at what speed right and and have amazing accuracy and so your your the price point the economic ratio going from a military drone that is procured over several years or months by defense prime and having to go through training and use versus a system that you could more than likely find a little software modification for and a payload dropper and a drone with a total cost of two or three grand is incredible, right? It's it's a massive difference in that price point and, and economic cost benefit. And so, you know, non-state actors and, and threat actor groups are utilizing this cheap technology uh, to be able to do that. 
So I think we're going to see a bit more automation in that space. As I said before, we're going to go in two different directions, depending on the target, more FPV and DIY drones. And if there's a larger target using those agricultural-based drones and the enterprise systems that can do heavy lift, that's where that's going. So, yeah, really interesting space. We'll, we'll probably continue to see more 3D printed drones themselves or drones made out of cardboard, you know, things that are even mm-hmm. cheaper and easier to use. And, you know, we, we saw it from day one. There was a, a Russian column walking along a village looking for situational awareness. And the system you see in, in his hands, one of the, the column at the rear of the column, is someone with a Mavic 2 controller and an iPad. And this is, you know, a few days into that invasion, and yet they were using small commercial off-the-shelf drones because you could just lift that up, recharge it easily, mm-hmm. get some situational awareness. We saw the same with snipers in the cities where they use a drone, navigate through those buildings, find a target, you know, position themselves. So the, the price point isn't going to change. Whether we see manufacturers putting any kind of a curb on it, I don't think it'll be possible because bypassing those restrictions and those no-fly zones is, is very trivial. We're just going to see innovation in the way payload droppers are made and payloads uh, are dropped from drones. Continued fin design, makeshift workshops producing more and more of these munitions to be dropped subsequently or simultaneously, right? There's a lot there, but yeah, we're not excited for the future of of drone warfare, I can tell you that. Yeah, I mean, that that was going to be my next question, right? Because we're speaking about threat, right? And what scares me is how these innovations on the battlefield are going to affect peacetime countries, criminal organizations, terrorist groups. How are they? Because they're going to learn, right? So the I think the first drones that were dropping payloads were were also being used by ISIS in in Syria. And I mean, the Battle of Mosul had a lot of drones that were being used. And I think a company like yours plays a big part in in, in tracking these and and educating not just the people who use drones or manufacture them, but the wider audience and, and, uh, and industry. So we've been talking about the threat. Can we talk about, uh, there's something that I wanted to mention because you said about innovation and drones being made from cheaper material, but just a quick one. Do you remember that drone that they made of tweaks? I do. I think there was a, uh, a sandal involved, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was very interesting. But in the counter drone or drone security, is there any hope? I mean, I don't want to be, you know, spreading doom, but what can we do if these things come? Yeah, great question. And, you know, counter drone, we often think of it as a, a technology, right? As a system mm-hmm. that sits there and does something. Mm-hmm. And I think the most important thing, if, if I was defending my castle, as so to speak, would be a layered approach like anything else, you know, the awareness of what humans can do without technology to counter a drone, mm-hmm. detect it and report it and respond to it, and then using technology, how they can do that. And the biggest research question right now, yeah, the biggest question of all counter drone is the legislation to use them, which is why they're mostly used by law enforcement military. It's very hard to get their use, even in some countries, for prisons or critical infrastructure. So regulation is honestly the biggest barrier to, to the counter drone industry, and that's changing with time. The White House has put out action plans regarding counter US, the UK, CPNI, different entities are putting out information, frameworks and guidelines are pushing that, that barrier little by little. 
But right now, you know, the most famous saying in the counter drone industry is there's no silver bullet. And it's true. You know, we're seeing a radar system that can detect things where it can't detect the the small crossbody. They've got a, a visual detection system where the visual detection system needs to determine whether it's a bird or a drone. They've even got an RF system. And the RF system will determine if there's a link between the drone and the controller or if there's GPS, right? And so there's a whole lot of different aspects to counter drone systems and the types of technology. You know, we, we evolved from using eagles by the, the Netherlands police in, in like 2014 mm-hmm. to drones that capture other drones with nets, right? And I think cyber will play a huge part of it, you know, the cyber exploitation of drone systems, because there's mm-hmm. a lot that are flying dark as such you know yeah. they're flying with starlink systems built in if, mm-hmm. if you thought using starlink to control drones was bad you know we put out some some recent intel on the newest rv starlink that they released it's meant to sit on your rv and you can get internet while you're, you're driving around that starlink dish itself was built into the drone so they took a heavy lift drone they put the dish into the drone and so that just means that, you know, you're not only using Starlink to connect to it, but the receiver is fully Starlink and they can use mm-hmm. visual to control the drone. They don't have to use GPS yeah. or RF, right? It's, it's using that Starlink, whatever protocols they support. So there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of options for them to bypass certain systems and you need to have the red versus blue, the system that prevents what they're trying to overcome back and forth. So yeah, there is hope. The counter drone industry is getting better and better with big test and evaluation events. So things like in the US, they used to have the Black Dart competition. Canada has the Counter US Sandbox. Oslo recently did the Interpol drone countermeasure exercise, right? And these are ways of making sure those systems work and seeing how they might work with each other, right? And there is pushes for you know standardization of, of threat reporting and so forth. But on the countermeasure side, this is what we've been saying from the start, right? No agency or security outfit or counter drone organization out there should be operating without drone threat intelligence. Mm-hmm. And this isn't a plug. It's it's a very fact that if you're building a system to sure. counter drones, yeah. you need to know what kind of technologies they're using, what are the threat actor budgets, where they're getting mm-hmm. and procuring the materials, what kind of protocols you're going to be up against, right? So if, if an organization is depended upon to protect against drones and yet they're not receiving some kind of rolling 24-7 intelligence, it's part of that whole counter-US solution. It's part of that layered approach. Yeah. Okay. There's a question that I have for you. I mean, I have a couple more questions, but something that you mentioned in the beginning of the of the podcast, you said 75% of all drones, the ones that you guys are looking at, are manufactured or parcel. Almost 100% of drones are manufactured in China. And how do you look at the role of the Chinese government, Chinese legislation, Chinese industry, having such a large hand in drones? Yes, it's a great question, right? Supply chain security is is a growing concern. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'll I'll correct you on the close to 100%. There has been a growing industry of stateside drone manufacturers who are building drones in the US and outside of of China, right, to try and mitigate some of those cyber and privacy concerns. I will say the issues they face are supply chain, right? It's much harder to be able to procure a bunch more components for a drone system if it's not mass manufactured in China. The parts are cheaper over there. The designs are cheaper. It's just simply 
an easier business model, right? Some of the the frameworks like Blue SUAS, which is led by the DIU Defense Innovation Unit in the US, basically does a cyber procurement of a drone system for penetration testing and so forth to make sure that drone is secure. So any organization with concerns about, say, Chinese influence in their drone systems or attack you know, attaching themselves to that data or collection usually will go through that blue SUAS program. And DJI so far has not made that list yet. There are drones they've made which are MIL standard, where they've got heavy encryption and, and you know they've got a lot of security, no doubt, and they've released white papers on that security. However, the blue SUAS kind of is that that glowing example of this is a trusted drone, usually built whether it's from France or from the US and so forth. Now, there's just something to say about that as well, and that's the reason why we are still pretty confident that 75% of the market is DJI, not only from other ways of establishing a market presence, but what we're seeing in Ukraine is still extremely heavily DJI. And when you observe Mm -hmm. the chats on places like Telegram and so forth, both from the Ukrainian side and the Russian side, DJI work the best, they're the friendliest to use, they've got great range, right, good visuals. When they talk about Autels, they're like, yeah, Autels are pretty good. You know, they're the second best, but they bypass some of the detection systems. They can go further in some cases, but they cost more. And when they talk about parrot drones, sometimes they have issues with range, right? And then they say, you know, they're secure, they're an awesome drone that can support 3 or 4G, but we have issues with range. This is none of my own opinions at all, of course, but it's something that we see yeah. the chatter evolve and the sentiment around what these drones are. So even though there is a massive supply chain risk for Chinese-built mm-hmm. products, you still see contracts and tenders being awarded for DJI-based products all through the Western world and the Five Eyes, even though there's been certain bans on them awarded to you know different departments and so forth. And you'll still see their use by law enforcement or first responders because they're built to be incredible, innovative machines, and they just work out of the box, right? So the the moving of that line isn't so much of this is a risk. I think everyone is quite aware of that. It's a do I care about the risk as much because no one else is caught up in terms of functionality and price point. It's a it's a hard it's a hard na- angle, man. Like it's yeah. something people are struggling with, but. You know, just like anything, if if you have critical infrastructure that is co-owned by an external entity, or you have the drones themselves inspecting that critical infrastructure that is fully owned by stateside, either way, you know, you you've got supply chain security risks at hand. Absolutely. And another thing you you mentioned earlier is the role of AI. Where 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 do you see that? The role of AI. On the threat intelligence, the cyber side, but also the development and usage of the own. Yeah, great question. And and look, you know, AI can be defined in different ways, but with mm-hmm. current usage, as an example, you know, law enforcement in Queensland, Australia, can drive up to an accident scene. They can launch a drone. It'll take five to ten minutes to create an entire lidar scene of an environment, and they can store that picture, clean the road, go back, and, and analyze that car crash in minute detail. Right, with a, a picture perfect 3D LIDAR image of the environment. And they can zoom up, they can zoom in, they can assess it. Once you're on the battlefield, if you're using technology like that with a number of drones and an unfamiliar environment, you're able to send up 
that the word swarm is used in different ways, but let's say a number mm-hmm. of drones at the same time and quickly assess even inside buildings where adversaries exist or outside in areas where there's, you know, trenches and so forth and create a, a very quick 3D model and then be able to direct fire or direct, you know, persons to that area. It can be incredibly useful. So we're not just talking about the automatic or the AI dropping of munitions on systems where it's detected that's a hostile vehicle, you know, using uh, computer vision and speed mm-hmm. and calculations. We're also talking about the use of drones and their, their sensors. So the vision that drones can pick up uh, and feed back into a map or a, a 3D kind of LiDAR image, the sounds that they can pick up, the RF detection they can do, you know, what they can carry, how they can act. AI will play an absolutely huge part of it. I think it would be quite silly to disregard any kind of innovations applying to drones. And and that's what we're seeing is a large amount of drones are getting innovation from other areas where it was just too difficult to do. You couldn't just rent a helicopter and attempt various techniques or flight profiles mm-hmm. with it. Drones make that so much easier. No fuel, you know, small battery, rechargeable, launch from anywhere, land anywhere. It's a formidable system. And so, you know, everything from facial recognition to automatic payload dropping to a drone deciding how to react when it detects jamming or spoofing is is already quite incredible and it will just keep on developing. Fascinating. I mean, you're in this industry and and you guys create a lot of intelligence and, and reporting on the subject matter. Is there something that keeps you up? Do you mean in terms of keeps us awake at night? Yeah, awake at night. I mean, absolutely. Um, so every month we publish a trends report of the unique observations we've made. And every month that grows in number, right? So we're seeing unique things we've never seen before. And usually what you want to state is nothing new under the sun, right? Like what you're seeing is just an, an age-old tactic redeveloped in a new way with new technology. But we're quite literally seeing new things where it's very hard to compare against existing technology. So I think the thing that keeps us up at night is the way that non-conflict zone actors are using drones in a way to have complete dominance over certain areas or assets. We're seeing you know, certain prisons, especially within Canada, being targeted time and time again with, with no end in sight, right? And so I think what the issue is, is, is our response is too slow in terms of those those countermeasures and the legislation and the funding and the budgeting. And if you look at how much companies, or should I say countries, are spending on counter-drone measures or R&D in the space, it's trivial. It's absolutely trivial compared to other sectors of warfare or technological development, right? So I think these, for us, the things that keep us up at night are when we see a very staged attack against something. So we'll see them launch a canary drone. A small drone, test the waters, determine if there's any countermeasure. If there's not, they'll launch their next drone. It's got an automated flight path, no RF back to the controller, so it's flying independently. Instead of using GPS, it's using vision to figure out where it's going. Largely unjammable, largely you know unmitigated by RF. And so these kind of dark drones are really setting the, the path, being able to do something come back to its landing spot or just simply smash on the ground because they don't need to reuse it, right? So that's really what keeps us up at night and, and just the amount of times where we see nation states miss key incidents that are occurring, like the Brazil incident I, I mentioned before, 
where you have an agriculture drone spraying chemicals on a crowd below. How the world media missed that, I don't quite know, but these are things that are happening very regularly where key incidents are happening and we're, we're not across what it would be like and how we would respond to that kind of incident uh, stateside. The Brazil situation, I don't think it was missed. I think it just didn't get the attention because I, I have seen media reporting on it, but it's too far from home, right? So it doesn't really matter, kind of. It's, it's a very dark thing to say, but sadly, that's the reality of, of, of a lot of how media works today. I feel like I can talk to you for hours and hours on this subject because it's fascinating. I would like to ask you, is there anything, because we are in, in, in somewhat similar areas of expertise, do you have any questions for me? I think what I would ask is, do you see threat actors utilizing drones as simply an add-on to their existing operations? Or do you see it as they're completely redoing or revolutionizing some of their TDPs to utilize drones, you know, replacing many of the existing systematic ways of operating with drones? Or do you still just see it as a, uh, a value add, should I say, from, from your experience and your analysis mm-hmm. right now? That's a great question. I think, uh, what is the famous saying? And I hope I'm not butchering it. You know, necessity is the mother of all innovation, right? And, I think that's the way for us to look at it. If a, a group, let's say uh, Boko Haram, for example, if they have access to GRAT missiles, right, then, and, and, and they can use it effectively, they don't really need a drone, right? So I think unless drones can do things that are similar to conventional means, we won't see that. But there are examples that we, that will never be in the media that use drones. And this is across the Sahel, across, I mean, Al-Shabaab in the Horn of Africa is using drones for, for reconnaissance and, and propaganda now. So, and that's not in the media. So I think intelligence sharing is incredibly important and the stuff that you guys are doing and, and, and how you build threat intelligence picture across different organizations and, and entities from public and private. But yeah, coming back to, to what we were seeing, there's also funding and, and how, how do you get drone into these very austere environments sometimes from time to time, right? So a lot of groups in the Sahel, you know, they operate in the desert and the, the tyranny of distance is incredible, right? So, so I think there are a, a couple of obstacles that will make it really hard for them to to use drones, for example, like they do it in, in uh, Myanmar and, and, and Ukraine. But I, I'm afraid that it is a matter of time that they will start using more and more drone-borne techniques and, and tactics. And, and to be fair, from the from the ones that are recovered or the examples, the, the yeah, the biggest problem is reporting. We just don't have enough coverage on these incidents, as you mentioned earlier. I mean, you think that the Brazil one was not covered, but something happening in the middle of Mali will probably not be covered at all, right? So so I think in that regard, we're kind of flying blind and no pun intended, but from particularly from a reconnaissance perspective and how they select targets, that has been something of a growing concern. 
Absolutely. And look, just to touch on what you said about procurement to areas where there's great distances, right? Like procurement of drones is a key point of the intelligence gathering. You have to know where they're getting these systems from. And, you know, there's a lot of drones captured at the borders of Uzbekistan and, and Tajikistan and so forth where, you know, they're not allowed to have drones in there, but they try to bring them across from other countries and they get stopped at the border. And so there's a lot of procurement from stolen drones. We're seeing drones that were stolen in the UK and they end up in Syria, right? And so there's some kind of process that they're able to get these drones and fly them. And one little add-on is the fact that if you've got a drone made in the US, it might use different frequencies or, or communication channels as flying in Australia, right? So there's little nuances there that might help them or, or hinder them. But one point that you may have covered at one point in your intelligence was there was some some US citizens that were arrested for trying to transfer a counter UAS system from the US into Iran, right? Huge, huge issue, you know, if they were to, to get that in and that technology be exploited. But these kind of things are happening. Threat actors are finding ways to procure and transfer drones and counter drone systems into obscure areas. And we have to expect that the adversaries are going to find ways to exploit them and find ways around them and, and defeat whatever our protection mechanisms are. Yeah, absolutely. I think because for us, the main threat picture is, is Africa, Middle East, and South America. And innovation-wise, there's obviously a lag in, in some African theaters simply because of lack of education and, and funding to... And I think, for example, IS, IS Somalia, there was a raid not so long ago by, by the U.S. because they were supplying a lot of TDPs to IS organizations like the Central Africa province in DRC, Mozambique. They were getting a lot of their uh, TDPs from, wow. from IS Somalia, even though they were not really doing any attacks in Somalia. So you are seeing the sharing of because of, and this is another thing, right? The level of OPSEC for these groups is intelligence agency level, right? None of them are allowed to have smartphone. Right? So the pictures that you see come out, there's one person that is designated of taking pictures and video, but all of the fighters have no GPS on it. It's a simple burner. So technology like drones, you know, that's, they see that as, hey, right, wow. we can, we can be spied on. So their, their OPSEC is, might not allow for the use of drone technology. Uh, it's something I just thought about because if you want to, from a human, from a human intelligence perspective, uh, and I'm not saying we are doing this, but if a government agency wanted to speak to one of a person in these groups, the only way that they're going to do it either is face to face or through messages, uh, that is by a courier or a burner phone. And you know, in that non-permissive environment, it's very difficult to to, uh, to use drone systems. So I think maybe that 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 forms a barrier of of entry to for them. That's a great insight, and uh, I think we've got to explore that in more detail at another time as well. That's uh, that's great. Yeah, for sure. I always ask people that I have on a podcast, what is a piece of advice or. or multiple pieces of advice, what advice would you give a young person that's listening to this or somebody that is either so from a perspective of a person that wants to get into what you're doing from a person that maybe wants to make a career switch 
or make a lateral move to what you're doing and for a perspective of a business that is affected by by, by the industry or, or the environment that you work in, the threats that you work with, what would you advise these three different actors? That's a great question. One of the key pieces of tactical advice I'd give if, if they really were young and starting out in the area, the first mm-hmm. is, is no zero days, right? So don't have a day ever where you take off not learning or reading something about the industry mm-hmm. you're trying to get in or just communicating with them, going to meet up, collaborating with them in that space, right? Super powerful, both the networking and, and discipline, right? Not a, not a motivational thing, which is a, a single spurt of energy. You're disciplining yourself to be involved in that industry over time and you'll slowly get to the point where you'll know who's who in the zoo and you'll be able to tap on shoulders when you need that role or when you want to find out how you can add value. Probably the other thing is having a home lab. So no matter what, being able to replicate a very small version of what you want to end up doing, um, whether that is intelligence collection, you can start off with, with OSINT gathering, right? and create a portfolio out of examples of what you've done to demonstrate to a future employer what kind of, even capture the flag, CTF examples or, or challenges you've done. Just have a home lab, build up your tool set, get to know the main tools that you see in those you know job ads or resume applications and build up your familiarity with them. So home lab is one. I think if you're applying to get into the industry, mine's been a bit of a meandering path from you know, cybersecurity to physical security mm-hmm. to then intelligence. And as I said, the background of our team members is some were flying drones, some were in Intel teams, some were fast jet pilots, others just built robots, right? And some were hackers. So at the end of the day, you have to be very creative and good at especially one thing. And I say that because, you know, I've known people who were, uh, who were chefs and cooks and they got into security and it's just that driving passion of working the long hours that they could put in and, and learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. So I think whatever your background is, we need your background because it adds a flavor to what we're looking at. And a lot of intelligence, they do want an opinion on things. They want to form a context from the way you see the world. It also helps with forming you know, what that picture might look like. So combining that, Altogether, I think should be a, a pretty good start for someone looking to uh, transition across. And from an industry, from a company that wants to have an internal or an external threat intelligence functionality, what advice would you give them? Well, look, if you're after drone threat intelligence, so you could contact me. <laughs> that's that's the self plug of the day. No, we 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 do focus on finished intelligence and making sure we're both broad and deep on the, the topics of, uh, and mm-hmm. intelligence that our customers need. If, if you're starting out, and I think you've got to be careful about just trying to put together an intelligence function without the people who are trained and, and understand that area, of course. But look, open source intelligence can tell you a lot today, publicly available information without getting into to the weeds of sensitive and restricted information, right? So there's a lot mm-hmm. you can currently do with open source tooling. I think a methodology is great to be able to stick by and be able to utilize. OPSEC Mm -hmm. is super important, making sure you're protected when you've got SOC puppet accounts or you're in certain chat groups or areas where you don't want to burn yourself or your company. And, you know, at the end of the day, if if you're in intelligence and you're serving the good guys, the bad guys are always going to see you as a target. So keep the information limited and your security heightened and your finger on the the pulse, right? That's that's great advice. Lastly, I would like to ask you 
Do you have any cultural recommendation? Something that you're watching, something you're reading, something you're listening to? This is a great question because I always have, have answers. <laughs> I'm going to give you two very obscure things. One is, so, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Very interesting book focused on creatives and people who are meant to be painting, but it's so applicable to normal work, right? It talks about the concept of procrastination as resistance and resistance is that feeling of the thing you should do most it's the most important thing that's why your brain is screaming at you to do it and by doing it you know you're going to get some great results so um that's a great book there's so many suggestions in terms of other bits and pieces but look in terms of a gift that i I often give friends and things like that is a a lodge cast iron pan because there is no way and, and apologies to any of the vegetarians or vegans on the show but um there's no way to make a better steak than using a cast iron pan over a, a hot flame and you know it usually changes people's perspectives over how to cook a good steak that's just one of my my little favorites and uh getting a bit personal there Ahmed. but anyway <laughs> no, no, no i love it love it love it all right is there anything like that you do in your in your time or that you watch that is not connected to your work something that you do to take your mind off things let's say that Look, most of what I do is is loosely connected to my passions in life, which is work, which is why mm-hmm. we, we built this company to be able to work with good people and do what we do for a living and enjoy it. But um, one thing my um, my wife and I do a lot is missing persons investigations. So we we dedicate mm-hmm. our spare time and free time to using our open source intelligence skills to finding missing persons. Unfortunately, we found some people who have been deceased. Other times, we found people who are alive, and it's. it's one of the greatest moments to see a family reunited when they thought they were dead, right? But missing persons is, is such an interesting area because it's a sense of ambiguity. Imagine mm-hmm. you were you know, gathering intelligence and you could find nothing on a target. You had no right. idea whether they were alive or not. So that's something we spend our free time on. And so I, I recommend if you, that's in your skill set, your wheelhouse, and you've got some spare time to um, focus on looking for some local missing persons. Yeah, that's amazing. I have a lot of friends that transition uh, maybe into the private sector or away from the military and, and their government roles that are doing a lot of missing children. So a lot of guys that were either in, in special operations or or an intelligence community doing that. So that's yeah, incredibly noble work. So that's pretty awesome that you're doing that. Hey, I think this is... Well, I don't think I know this for sure. This is the longest podcast I've done so far. <laughs> and it's, it's been, yeah, it's been mega interesting. And as I said, I think we can talk for much longer about things. And I definitely know you and I are going to keep on talking. Any, do you have any final thoughts that you would want to leave us with? I think the final thought and, and point of me, I guess, being here focusing on this topic is from 2013, 2014, there was no way a world could almost imagine drones would be this this type of threat, right? Or, or the risk mm-hmm. around them, or what's occurred with them already. So, um, you know, this is a growing area, and I think in the next ten years, it's going to be so different. We're going to have drones, quite literally, delivering food and medicine and and that kind of thing around cities because cities are going mm-hmm. towards that area, and so the threat. And the number of registrations and the number of drones being produced is going to 10x. And so the threats we're going to see associated with drones is only going to climb. And we're going to see a, a merging of 
managing friendly drones whilst detecting and preventing malicious drones and rogue drones, right? So the the lines are going to blur between conflict and non-conflict zones, and these drone systems are going to be used by military, state actors, non-state actors, and friendlies as well. So it's definitely at a, a point where even if you work in physical security, drones need to be on your radar, maybe not for what they are right now, but even in a, in a few years. If you work in cybersecurity, understand there is a growing area of being able to exploit and find vulnerabilities in drone <clears throat> and hijack them and DOS them, right? And if you work in intelligence, if you're not being able to analyze what your threat actors are doing and how they can extend their operations or stay a bit more hidden with using drones, you're, you're, you're going to be at a loss. So I think drone intelligence is a growing industry. It's a field that will only continue to increase in risk and availability. And I hope people on this podcast can reach out to me directly, you know, or Grow Dynamics, DroneSec, and find out a little bit more about drone threat intelligence. Absolutely. We'll put all of Mike's, at least the ones that he wants to share, information in the show notes. So you can find him over there. Mike, thank you so much for your time, your insights. And, uh, and I think anybody listening can hear how passionate and, and how engrossed you are in this in this field. So I, I love to see it. I love always to talk about people that are working in intelligence and how they're using intelligence in their, in their daily work. So that's amazing. And for everybody listening, guys, thank you for the support and thank you for all of the, the, the messages, the comments. I think people like Mike were able to find us because of people sharing our work. And that's amazing. And if you're listening to podcasts on Spotify, Apple, whatever, and or YouTube, and you like what we're doing, please give us your feedback, give us a rating, whatever we deserve. And I'll speak to you guys soon. Mike, again, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. And I'll talk to you soon. Absolute pleasure. Thanks.